Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher, an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Hello and welcome to episode 211 of the Chills of Will podcast. Pleasure today to be joined by two people, Chris L. Terry and James Spooner. Here's a little bit about both. Chris L. Terry is the author of the novels Black Card, which came out with Catapult in 2019, and Zero Fade, which is 2013 from Curbside Splendor. That was named Best Book of the Year by Slate and Kirkus Reviews. Mr. Terry's short work has appeared in PANK, that's an acronym P-A-N-K, Razor Cake, Very Smart Brothers, and more. He has taught for Pen America, Writing Workshops LA, and Storycatchers Theater. James Spooner is an American film director, tattoo artist, and graphic novelist. He's best known for his 2003 documentary film Afropunk and for co-founding the Afropunk Festival. He also directed the 2007 narrative film White Lies, Black Sheep. His first graphic novel, titled The High Desert, was published in 2022. Gentlemen, how are we doing today? Great. Oh. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And oh yeah, I forgot to mention the one of the major reasons while we're talking is that we have that Black Punk Now is out. Boom. There it is, as Chris holds it up. <laughs> Came out October 31st. Why Tuesdays? Or I guess Tuesday's the publishing day, huh? I don't know anything about why that is. It seems like they've probably done their math on that. Um, but it came out just, <laughs> just a week ago from when we're talking, or maybe less than a week. I'd love to know, maybe, Chris, maybe start with you. And as we were saying, you know, it's awesome to have you on again. Again, you are the first of the two timers, right? <laughs> I don't know if you ever, you ever saw those those corny, like, Saturday Night Live skits where, like, the five timers club. <laughs> and they got, like, a jacket and the whole deal. So I'm going to send you, I'll get, I'll get a tailor out there and we'll send you a nice jacket. That's good. That's good. Yeah. I'm a I'm a forty long. <laughs> right. Okay. Right. You were ready with that. Um, I'd love to know um how it feels with the book out in the world. It's been about a week. Like, what kind of what kind of feedback have you gotten? I know it was a, a long work in progress. And I I'll ask you too. I I think you said in the acknowledgments that a lot of this came from Black Card, like kind of like taking the tour with the book. I'd love to know about seeds for the book on, on your end, and then kind of uh, how it's been these first this first week or so with it out there. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, like you were saying, I don't know why Tuesdays are chosen as release days. There kind of reaches a point when you're working with a publisher where it feels like you like feed your manuscript into a machine and then let them go to work. Um, mm. And somewhere in there is where Tuesday is. And it works yeah. for them. It works for me. Um, it's been really nice bringing the book into the world. Uh, we've had, we did a Zoom event last week with Loyalty Books in DC. And then we had an in-person event at Skylight Books here in LA. Um, and at both of them, we brought in some of our contributors to the book. So, and they're all like people who we respect and like and are often friends with as well. So it's mm. felt like really social. It's just been really fun and kind of underlines the feeling of like making this book for community purposes. You know, it isn't just for us and it isn't just our egos at work, okay. um, which makes it all just feel a lot, a lot better, a lot lower stress. Um, 
it's been wonderful. Yeah. Um, yeah, Seeds of the Book, my most recent novel, Black Card, came out in 2019. Um, and it's inspired by some of my experiences trying to understand my own like multiracial black identity while playing in punk bands in the South in the 90s and in the 2000s. It's like speculative fiction where a punk bassist who's like a mixed race black guy has a black imaginary friend who takes away his black card, like his membership to blackness, and he has to go on a mission to win it back. Um, and through doing that tour, I met some other like black punk rockers um, who were out in the world, some of whom were kind of part of a generation that came up after me. I'm in my 40s. Mm. So these are people that were, you know, uh, maybe not even alive when I was first going to shows. Um, and James and I were just becoming friends then as well. And we were having a lot of conversations about like how much cooler punk seems now than it was mm. in our heyday. Um, and how, you know, and I was trying to think of ways to be involved and supportive in an age appropriate way. You know, I can't be, no one wants to hear a band from me <laughs> at this point. Um, and I can't go to gigs like three times a week. Yeah. So, and I wanted to experience art by, by the kind of new wave of people. And I wanted to find a way to support and a book seemed like a really good way. Yeah. And there was no way I wasn't going to do it without James. Nice. The age appropriate thing, huh? I, I'm, I'm laughing with you, not at you. With you, <laughs> right? It's sure. like, so, so, you know, they always talk about like, you know, I, I think it's like James Dolan is the owner of the New York Knicks and like, you know, kind of like sad older guy rock or whatever. And you are nowhere near that age, not even nowhere close. Do you, do you still play? No, I, I am sad though. That's for sure. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay. All my, all my creative energy just goes into, <laughs> into writing. I'm working on my third novel now. Um, I keep joking that I'll start a band when my kid is old enough to be embarrassed by it. And I think yeah. I have a couple more years before that's the case. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> Thank you for that. I appreciate that. James, I forget if I was reading it on your social media or on your website recently, but really cool article or piece or, or excerpt about kind of like you and your relationship with your daughter and like with like music together and all of that. So I was wondering like what you're seeing um, with like this new generation that Chris talks about, the new generation of punk rockers, and also kind of the same question for you about what kind of, you know, where the seeds were. I know High Desert is pretty recent, just a year or two old. Um, the graphic novel and got all kinds of great, great um, acclaim and rightfully so. But I just wonder if like that book led you into this or I think there was something in your in your intro about this going way back to like the documentary and the whole deal. Kind of a, a mix of questions there, but just about like kind of the newer generation of mm -hmm. punk rock, black punk rockers and just about your kind of seeds for this book, too. Yeah, the, the seeds for this book probably do go back much further than than. Uh... I don't know, we need to go like super deep into, but you know, like the high desert, my book, the high desert uh, is about my first year finding punk um, and being, you know, 13 in 1989, finding punk rock um, in a town that was, you know, filled with, um, I was like one of two black kids in a town that was just filled with Nazis. Mm. So um, that was like a, a, a tough intro to punk, you know? And um, the experiences that I had throughout my my teen years, um, you know, were varied. I moved around a lot. I was in a lot of different scenes. Um, but uh, basically, it, it, it led me to make the Afropunk documentary in my 20s when I wanted to really um, start. I wanted to really, like, look back on my 
my punk years at that point, I was still in my early twenties. So I was just looking back at my teens, you know, and, um, and I just wanted to have a more nuanced conversation about race within the, within the punk scene. Hmm. And, um, that little like documentary exploded into a, uh, I mean, at the time, you know, there was, there were some shows that turned into a festival um that festival has morphed into this huge brand that and a and festival that a hundred thousand people go to uh wow. annually um in three different cities or four different cities in seven different countries um <laughs> and uh you know it's like a multi-million dollar corporation that i don't have anything to do with you know mm. um but where this book kind of picks up is that you know what no one expected afropunk to become became and then the underground reacted and um and all of these black and brown punk kids not exclusively through my film but it, my film being part of the conversation mm -hmm. um helped i think launch a a wider and like I said before, more nuanced conversation about being a person of color in punk. Hmm. And um, so when, you know, fast forward 20 years and Chris approaches me about doing this book that is really focused on the last 20 years of punk, of black, hmm. of black people in punk, mm -hmm. um, it made perfect sense because, you know, people have always asked me like, you know, do I want to make an Afropunk 2 or would I consider making Afropunk 2? And it just, that never made sense to me because unfortunately the the issues that are raised in the documentary are still present, you know? So it would just be a different cast of characters. Okay. But this book uh, addresses those issues in new and creative ways where people can tell their story through horror or through um, sci-fi or mm -hmm. through fantasy or, you know, um, and there are also interviews and comics, you know, we really asked the, all the contributors to just, you know, let their voices be heard in their own preferred medium. Mm -hmm. So there is like a variety of things, you know, scripts, mm -hmm. there's, uh, I mean, there's some interviews. There's basically everything but poetry in there, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I don't know what you would call like the, you know, like when you're doing the tab and, you know, there's like the conversations, you know, like, oh, 10, 10 inches bigger or 10 inches higher. Like, I don't know. That's, that's, I don't know what you call that. That's something different too, right? Like when you're having like a conversation with the tattooee, then there's we're, also we're, the interview on the separate side. You know what I mean? When we, we, uh, when you tattooed Bronte's, when we were, while we were interviewing. Oh, exactly. Yeah, that was, got you know. We need to give props to Cecilia Flores at, um, at Soft Skull. We had those as part of the transcript, and uh -huh. I was like taking out the the tattoo framing, um, and she's like, "No, you got you got to keep those in there. Those those keep yeah. this thing forward. It's, you never see that, right?" So yeah, right. it was yeah. Sometimes it was kind of finding new ways to do stuff. And another thing, <clears throat> excuse me, that we were thinking about was like decentering whiteness. So it wasn't just black people being like, "Yeah, some racist shit happened to me at a show where there was a bunch of white people." Like that mm -hmm. is present in the book, but a lot of it is about kind of creating black spaces and the positive things that can come from that. Yeah, you know, there is 
there's blackness that is defined by whiteness, you know, and then there is like black culture and and black joy as as it's been dubbed, you know, and I think that you can find a lot of black joy within the book, um, even just like looking at the cover. I love mm. that we chose the photo that we did because that crowd looks like they're having the time of their lives, you know? Yeah. And, um, and like, I feel like everybody who goes, who looks at that picture is like, damn, I wish I was at that show. You know, <laughs> you know, I, I think that was like a, a nice uh, way to, to introduce what we're trying to do here. I appreciate that for, for either or both of you. Like, so you're talking about like, so I read on a Kindle, for example, and like, you know, there's literally like hyperlinks to the end. You have the contributors notes and contributors, I should say contributors, you know, bios, right? You know, go check her out at this website, blah, 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 which is obviously so cool. And you're talking about, I also want to ask you about the title, about the now part of it. And, you know, the last 20 years is, I wonder about like the idea of like it being time sensitive. I feel like some of the things are so now like, you know, dates or events or people that, you know, just happened or we, they're in the news right now. And some of it, like you said, unfortunately is, you know, as old as time, you know, intersectionality necessary because of racism. So I just wonder about like the timeliness of it. Do you feel like this is something that you're going to want to update in five years, 10 years, or do you feel like it stands on its own in 2023 or 2033? I, I think that uh, sort of irony of making this book is that I bet that as we continue to bring it into the world, we're going to meet people that we wish were in the book. Uh -huh. um, I wouldn't rule out a part two, but yeah. we haven't, you know, we're still, we're still in the moment with this yeah. one. Um, I see the now in the title is working two ways. Like it's a demand. We want mm -hmm. black Lives now immediately. Mm -hmm. We need it. Um, and also it's, we wanted it to be contemporary. We didn't want this to just feel like a history book of black punks through the ages, you know? Yeah. So we wanted people who were still involved in mm -hmm. punk in some way, or who were um, talking about the scene, scenes or their own their own work that has happened in the last 20 years since James's Afropunk documentary came out in 2003. Mm. So I know that's kind of a loose now, but mm. we wanted it to be sooner as opposed to later. And one of the reasons for that was to help create like a bigger frame of reference for Black punks. Uh, there's kind of a running joke that uh, if a new Black punk band comes out, someone says that they sound like bad brains. Um, ah. Bad Brains are like a pioneering hardcore band, black band, mm -hmm. um, excellent band, started in the 70s. Mm -hmm. um, and they're also a pretty unique sounding band. And just because it's some black people in the band doesn't mean that they also sound like Bad Brains. So maybe now somebody can look through here and say, oh, you know, they, they sound, this band sounds like Rough Francis. Right. Or this black artist writes like Alex Smith. Um, it isn't sure. like the literary Bad Brains or something. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, yeah, you did. So you both have your intros in the book and your intro is, you know, basically beyond bad brains. And like you just said, you you wrote about you want you wanted to give voice and inspiration, right, to a range of fans. And I believe, James, your intro is, I mean, you talk about a picture worth a thousand words, the imagery you paint in, in 2001 or so you Googled black punk or Afro punk. I think it was black punk, the, you know, the search term. And you got like, what, zero hits or one hit? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I wonder, and like you said, you know, you obviously weren't the only one, but just like, I can't see it. I can't see it on the, on the World Wide Web. I wonder a little bit more about going from that barely being online, barely making a footprint, at least virtually, to the corporatization that really seem, seemingly has taken over, not just in, with punk, right, but with everything. Yeah. I mean, we're definitely living in a, a time where, at least in the United States, art feels... Uh, monetized it feels like 
you know, everything is about capitalism. And I, you know, I, I, I get caught up in that, in that too, you know, I'm a, a victim of this culture, but uh, the intention of Afropunk, the documentary was to bring a, to, to bring a voice where there wasn't one. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then when I started doing screenings, I was doing, I did, I did 120 screenings in the first year. Wow. So, uh, and a lot of them were in New York. I was doing, I was doing screenings in New York, like a couple times a month at least. Uh -huh. And every single time over a hundred people would come and it would be, you know, at a bar, it would be at a place where, I mean, my rent was like 600 bucks and I was able to pay my rent just from ticket sales, you know, because mm. I was just doing like stuff at like at a bar or at a sure. like, you know, wherever. I don't know. Like, yeah, there were some there were some movie theaters, but most of it was, you know, grassroots type stuff, you know. And um, so I'm getting all these people to come out and I'm like, well, shoot, if this is already if these people are here, then we need to keep them here. Let's like they need to become friends, you know? Mm. And I was a party promoter for a lot of years uh, prior to that. So putting together, uh, you know, having some DJs, having some bands, like that just came natural and made total sense. Mm -hmm. And as that grew, it became hard to not want it to keep growing. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I brought on a partner who was more of a music manager like he was in he was more business savvy mm -hmm. and in a matter of four years we were like getting a hundred hundred something thousand dollars worth of sponsorship that was like going towards paying for like much bigger acts and bigger mm -hmm. uh, bigger stage and all of this stuff that quite frankly it like grew too fast and it didn't, and the audience wasn't there to support um, the infrastructure that we had built. Okay. So, so, so basically it was like, instead of letting it grow organically, it was like, well, let's just get more, like, let's get some hip hop acts. Let's get groups that don't, that aren't punk, you know, mm -hmm. just so that we can have a reason to have a thousand people or 2000 people in a room. Right. Mm and um and keep our sponsors happy and once you start once you start catering to sponsors then you're not then you're looking at your community as numbers mm. and these people weren't numbers to me they were individuals you know mm. but the train had left the station and i couldn't right. pull it back so all i could do was leave yeah i appreciate that Not obviously not exactly the same thing, I th Chris. I think it was you in one of the one of the interviews in the book with Charlie Valentine. I think it was I think it was you that did it. That was uh, Osa Addo, which I, I wanted to speak on that a little bit. So uh, okay, keep going. Okay, well I was going to say uh, with about the money, about just just some money for like an interview or something like that. I may be misspeaking on a little bit, but just that you were you were saying in the interview like you were pleasantly surprised that he had asked for money for an interview. Not a lot, but just kind of like the whole like DIY ethos, you know, of punk and all that. And just that that balance between not 
selling out. I, I know it's a term that's way overused. Corporatization versus like, hey, you do really good work, you know, in the space of you know writing about black punk. You being you know general, or you yeah. do great you know work in this. Like th that balance between being being compensated for your art because you do great work, and also like you know James said, not kind of outgrowing or what's the term, uh, outkicking your your coverage or whatever. <laughs> Yeah, cliche. <laughs> so um, that piece, it's by Osa Addo, who did okay. the zine uh, Shotgun Seamstress, which I would say is like a direct precursor to Black Punk now. It okay. was a Black Punk zine in the 2000s and into the 2010s. Um, and yeah, I think in the intro, she talks about reaching out to Charlie Valentine, the musician, and being asked if Charlie asking if they're going to be paid for their time. Um, and I think that that is indicative of a big shift. You know, Osa is more in me and James's age bracket. Um, mm -hmm. And Charlie Valentine is in their 20s. And uh, I think younger generations are a lot more comfortable, especially like in the DIY world, talking about needing to be paid for their efforts, whereas that was considered kind of tacky or mm -hmm. taboo in our era. You know, it was like, oh, that's some rock star stuff. You're, you're trying to sell out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, well, I'm trying to put gas in the car to get to the next gig and I can't right. do that if right. you don't pay me um and i think that you know this openness well i'm not a fan of capitalism in the least i <laughs> i think that this openness to talking about money to naming your own price um i think that's empowering and i think it's also like i think it's empowered uh people with less privilege to get involved in punk because mm -hmm. it could feel like in the 90s you know you could be real real anti-capitalist and you know, not care about getting paid 20 bucks to play, pay, play, to play a gig if you got your parents' credit card sure. in your back pocket. But now people who don't have their parents' credit, car parents credit cards mm -hmm. are having an easier time getting into the scene, getting into the, into the discussion. Um, and ideally, I hope, being compensated for their work. You know, you shouldn't have to go broke to be part of a community. Is it safe to say that like Charlie Valentine and others like them, they've they not that they don't know anything different, but they definitely there definitely has been a change in those years where where where, where they're artists, like you said, and they, they're used to being compensated. I, I guess they, they kind of like they know nothing different. Yeah. I mean, I think selling out, I think that as a concept was biggest with Gen X and has been kind yeah. of yeah. kind of kind of waning ever since. So I think if you're a younger artist, like that conversation isn't as isn't as prevalent. You know, there's definitely other stuff you can do to make it seem like you're making your art in bad faith but people aren't, yeah. I think, expected to call you a sellout. I remember, um, I was thinking about how, like, back in the early 2000s, when uh, we we were doing these uh, events called the Liberation Sessions, those were the, 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 the precursor to the Afropunk Fest. Mm -hmm. And um, we would guarantee bands 200 bucks, um, which felt like, like, wow, we are really doing the most right now, you know? And bands were, like, stoked to, like, yeah. drive from D.C. to, like, you know, make 200 bucks. But what we were, you know, and th that was, like, scary to me to, to make those kind of guarantees. But, um, you know, we were also charging $10 at the door, which felt, like, crazy, mm. you know? Um, yeah. But kids were... <laughs> happy to pay it you know yeah. some um, context like the going rate for a punk gig back in the day was five or six bucks okay yeah and like um yeah and and i getting paid you know getting paid two hundred dollars felt like wow like 
bands are still getting paid two hundred dollars, you know, like now. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, all these years later, but it's just a thing of like, can we can we like share the wealth? Can we spread it around? And also, like, as an artist, I know that I know my worth in some arenas, like a conversation or a, or a keynote speech might be worth five grand if I'm doing it for an institution, you know, and might be worth like a couple hundred bucks if it's like a nonprofit or something, you know? Sure. Yeah, yeah. And I'm comfortable with making those assessments, you know, and, and working on a sliding scale because I just want to like, I don't want to not speak to people who um, I might inspire or, um or a community that i might be able to connect with you know yeah so when you said you charging ten dollars back in the day you're talking ten dollars plus like the Ticketmaster fees it makes it 43 dollars or like ten dollars <laughs> no just ten dollars at the door <laughs> man right you're like oh those tickets not bad there you know whatever 75 bucks and it's like 155 and yeah yeah like, Ticketmaster is crazy Ticketmaster, you gotta get their the thing on the top one of the cool things about the book is there's i don't know five or six maybe more round tables right round table interviews with I don't know, four or five women, black women from the United States. I think from Britain as well. I know from Britain. So like Shana or Shanna, I'm not sure if I'm saying the name right. Uh, there's, I think there might be one of both. Shanna with a S-H-A-N-N-A. She says in one of the roundtables that punk is the punk is the only black music that adequately expresses rage. And she talks about it being a rage that's only found in POC spaces. There's all kinds of quotes like that about, you know, being, uh, this is from Talib who says, you know, quote, being black is as punk as it gets. That's the one in the screenplay, right? Mm -hmm. One of the interviews you did, Chris, that it was saying, you know, being black and being punk challenges traditional ideas of blackness. And that is so punk. And I put so with three O's. It might've <laughs> been, like, been like six. Yeah, I think right. that was that was uh, Bobby Hackney Jr. put that as his, yes. his quote at the beginning of his piece. Yes. Now he's the one whose father was kind of a was a was a punk rocker back in the day, right? Yeah. yeah. So uh, Bobby and his brothers are all they all grew up in Vermont, and their dad is a musician. Their uncles are musicians, and they had a reggae band when they were coming up. Yeah, and yeah. as Bobby and his brothers got into punk, they discovered that their dads had this like basically proto-punk band, like band that sounded like punk before punk was a thing in the 70s. Yeah. Oh. Um, and that band kind of got popular with like retro vintage record collectors. Yeah. So their dad suddenly had like all this cred and the sons were like figuring this out. I, I talked to Bobby about that and about um, some of his experiences, you know, growing up as a black punk in a very white Vermont and rural mm -hmm. Vermont, like half an hour outside of Burlington. Yeah. Um, there are some great stories in there. Alon gets burned in the process. Um, yeah, that was, it was really, it was really nice to talk to Bobby. And also I did two other, like, as told two essays in there where I interviewed uh, Pierce Jordan from the band yeah. Soul Glow, who are one of the, if not the one of the best black punk bands working today. Oh. Um, and Mars Dixon, who's in a band called I Naco. Um, he's also a model. I just saw him on the eBay homepage the okay. other day. Huh. Um, <laughs> but I would interview them and then take my questions out and work with them to shape their answers into a personal narrative. Um, and that was some, I don't know, I, that was kind of summed up just how giving an open and yeah. people were with us throughout this process was yeah. the ability to do that and not feel like things were being held back in the pieces, not feel like the things I was writing were suffering. Um, yeah. And hopefully not. And also doing everything that I could to make it feel like a 
positive experience mm-hmm. for the people whose stories I was working to share too. Very cool. I wanted to get back to the to the Hackney Brothers and all that in just a minute. Um, what you're talking about with Mars Dixon was so so cool. Writing about like writing about video games and making video games and kind of like video games is aspirational and you know the avatars and uh, Sims, I guess, right? And just this idea that you can make what you want to make, which is obviously you know obviously very closely related to this book. You know, screw who says I can. I can make whatever I want. I can make it in the way that I want. I yeah. want to. I would love to know about, you know, like kind of like the, not that you are both considered to be, you know, n- need to be music experts or, or historians of every single rock and roll, you know, but like this idea that, you know, comes up in the book that punk is, is obviously a form of rock, rock and roll, like, like pretty much every musical type was originally a black form, right? And was all co-opted and has been co-opted, obviously. Just this idea of like rock being originally a black music, black American music. And then coming around to where punk rock was not in some space, it is not in some spaces seen as black music. I don't know if that my meandering question makes any sense there. Well, I mean, I think rock and roll started as black music and quickly got hijacked by, you know, the Elvises of the world mm-hmm. um, almost immediately after it got named. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, and so I think I think that it was easy to see it as white music because that's what was really being put to the forefront. Um, sure. And so, I don't know, I, I came up, in in the 80s my dad is my black parent and he likes a lot of rock music so you know at home i was hearing living color black rock band i was hearing thin lizzy Jimi hendrix prince muddy waters um a lot of black people with guitars uh but that wasn't as like kind of culturally common um i think the internet has helped that i think people are able to find more stuff as opposed to just what's going on Mm. you know at home or with their friends at school and yeah. you can kind of pick and choose a little bit more. I think that's been a big help. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think that the, um, like for us coming up, people in the, who grew up in the nineties, uh, we were, we, we talk about bad brains and fishbone because they were like huge bands that were, uh, highly influential and also all black. Right. And, you know, if you were from a a bigger city, you may have other examples of people who, you know, maybe the whether it's the front person or other people in the band Mm -hmm. that are black. So there was like you're able to see yourself reflected, you know, but um, now for the generation who's learning about music, if they want to find people who reflect their um identity it's just uh, like a a few minutes of searching to f- to find it yeah so uh, you know kids have the opportunity to look for Check. people who reflect them better or are more they have more of a connection to you know so that that definitely changes the game but we also have access to more history so you can look back and say like okay so bad brains was there at the beginning and you do a little bit of research and you find out that they were actually like um, the first, if not among the first five uh, bands that could be described as hardcore. You mm-hmm. know, the word moshing comes out of their mm-hmm. um, a story from them. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then, you know, this band death sur- uh, resurfaces and it's like, oh, wait. So there was an all black band playing in the circle of mc5 and iggy pop wow you know like so the bands that we recognize as the uh 
the, the godfathers of punk, like they had black, like direct black inspiration, not just mm -hmm. like, oh, it's like, you know, they like jazz or they like blues or whatever, you know? Mm -hmm. Or you find out about Pure Hell, who was another band that was all black that was actually around uh, in between the two of those two that mm -hmm. was playing around the uh, New York Dolls era. And when Malcolm McLaren, who was the manager of the Sex Pistols, before he started the Sex Pistols, he was hanging around New York City, uh, seeing like the punk scene that was 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 yet to be named. They were calling it New Wave at that time. Um, and he meets these black punk guys and he's like, yeah, you know, I want to start a band. I want to I want to bring a band to England and like uh and try to promote this these clothes that I'm doing with Vivian Westwood. And basically he's offering them the opportunity to become the Sex Pistols, you know? Mm. So it's like, there are these like major, not like kind of minor, but like major black figures um, and black bands, all black bands uh, at the forefront of all of these, these movements. Um, so, you know, so yes, you can look at black punk now, today, and see that some of the most popular bands in the scene right now are Soglo and v and Zulu, both of whom are Zulu is all black and mm -hmm. Soglo is mostly black. And then you can look back to the beginning and all the origins, and and also see all of these important black bands, mm -hmm. and. Uh, so then it so then punk doesn't feel as white as it as it's uh characterized mm -hmm. as being you know yeah. and that's not even to talk about all the like the latinos and all the asians and all the right. other poc people who right. who have been kind of like whitewashed or silenced mm -hmm. um through through history and are only starting to have uh, uh bigger voices or be recognized you know I, I used to sing for a like emo core band called Light the Fuse and Run, and mm -hmm. we toured out to California for the first time in 2002. And I remember coming back to Virginia and talking to my parents, like, there's more people who look like me out there, and they're also like into the same stuff as me. I, I need to get the hell out of Richmond. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it, it has always been present, and it can be kind of, it can be easy to forget or be kind of marginalized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, you were mentioning, James, you were mentioning Fishbone. Here's an unsolicited trivia question. Mm -hmm. Do you remember on which 90s action soundtrack Fishbone appeared? A big action, I, I got action is the key word. Action okay. is the key word. Chris, give it, take it away. They were on were they on the Judgment Night soundtrack? Close. Oh now, now I'm gonna say last action hero. Oh. Ah. We're both too I, I have for all these movies, these corporate movies. So uh <laughs> right. Well, you know, so I mean when I'm saying that you might be right too, Chris. I'm the one I'm just no, because he's, it's the, he's the not one right. I'm thinking Judge, of. Judgment Night was a was a was that was the collaboration uh, uh that was like what that was that like was a like, rap and was, rock. Who was that? Ice T? Yeah, yeah. That yeah. was like uh they lost all the Onyx and Biohazard and, Onyx and Biohazard, yeah, 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 yeah. That was that was the hit off of that one, but um yeah. But Fishbone was also in um, Back to the Beach. 
the ah. the, the the comedy with uh, Annette Funicello and uh, what's his what's his name? Um, Frankie Avalon. Frankie Frankie Avalon. They did it. They did like a re. They came back and did one oh. in the in the late nineties. Oh. Fishbone was in that as well as Pee Wee. <laughs> deep deep cuts. Deep cuts. Oh my gosh. So I definitely was going to go listen to Fishbone, the uh, Action Action Last Action Hero, and I'm forgetting about the Onyx and Biohazard too. I'm going to go check that out after we're done. Right? <laughs> You're about to be tearing it up tonight. Right. Oh my god, my kids are like, it's a Monday night, Dad. I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> I I just wonder about like I was saying, I I said some of those quotes about you know quote being black and being punk challenges traditional ideas of blackness, and that is so punk. The idea of some there's one of the graphic novel excerpts. It's about these two guys who kind of find each other. And they're like they're following each other. They're not necessarily friends, but you know, feeling um, Crowley, yeah, AT Crowley's piece. Thank you. Yes, and the idea of you know kind of feeling stigmatized for being punk, for being black punk, and just you know finding others, but just more so at the very root of it, like black punk. And um, I'm so impressed that like especially some of the later pieces in the book in the anthology. They're not necessarily even about music. You know, some of the fiction, like music is kind of touched on, maybe, maybe not, you know, but just about how like how black punk is about liberation, what it really is about, and just about how, you know, the touches touches upon intersectionality, um, you know, gender fluidity is mentioned a lot. Um, I guess just about how how revolutionary it is. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, punk isn't, you know, it isn't just a genre of like aggressive music, you know, for we were focusing on punk that is kind of regarded as a lifestyle, you know, that mm -hmm. includes progressive politics and it'll touch on the other stuff you do in, in your life. Um, be that, you know, the way that you make money, the way that you form and interact within your community. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that was and we, we wanted to show that we didn't want this to just be just about the music it's there was a popular punk festival in the 90s called more than music that had like a mm -hmm. political sort of community aspect to it and we took that kind of more than music ethic to our book as well you know and a lot of the people in there are like multi-hyphenates so mm -hmm. i made a playlist for large-hearted boy that has maybe 10 or 12 songs just by the bands of people who are in the book and we have people who are also, you know, doing everything from pottery to political activism mm -hmm. uh, to teaching in there. Yeah. Yeah. Like you like you already talked about said so well, it's so cool that it's it is about now touch upon the history, which you must and which is definitely necessary. And there's, you know, great precursors to these more current ones, more modern ones. But like that, the the music and the lifestyle, like you said, keep evolving and more progressive. I mean, I don't know, I'm picking I don't know. Motley Crue, what, Vince Neil, is he the lead singer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever. I'm thinking, you know, picking a band out of there. I don't necessarily think that he has, you know, read up on all these things. You know, punk musicians seem, and I'm sure we, you know, you kind of cherry pick a little bit, but it seems so with it. Know their stuff. They're well read. You know, they can speak on all kinds of different topics. I, I remember in the 90s when I heard like, um, you know, Liar by Henry Rollins. I'm like, oh, he's good at yelling. You know, I've seen, it, I've seen it over the years, like he's he's a brilliant dude, right? And like you know these, these you know I think Bad Religion, you know, seem to be, and you know all these people that you have that are musicians or just or writers or both in the book, they're they're with it. So I love to know too about gender. You give a a, a big time, you know, spotlight to so many women, which they're already taking it for themselves. They have so many great things going on too. But I just wonder about have you seen even in your lifetimes, in your short lifetimes, since you're so young. Have you seen an evolution in the way that that women 
are treated and kind of like the space they have in, in Black Punk? I would, I mean, it's hard to, to speak on behalf of women and non-binary folks, but like the conversation is, is happening in a way that it definitely wasn't in the 90s, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm friends with some people who were like early Riot Girl pioneers and they when they tell me stories about the crazy like the just the shit that they had to go through just to be in a band mm-hmm. um like i i just i'm sure that some of that happens but not to the degree that it was then you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh i feel like there are a lot of female fronted bands and and there aren't the kind of questions that like when I was a kid, you'd see a female fronted band and somebody would be like, you know, whose girlfriend is that? Like, they're not really into it. Somebody just mm. dressed them up in the, in that t-shirt. Like, mm. you know, there's always these questions of like, whether they're, they're really punk or they're really about it, you know? Mm. And um, I think that women have more of an opportunity to express themselves and express their, um, and relay their experience i'm quite sure there's still a lot of bullshit you know um but i would like to believe it's a safer space than it was back in the day right i I also think that um like women and non-binary people which i know that's a relatively newer term considering the history that we're talking about here Mm -hmm. have, have always been pleasant present rather and have always been and but are sometimes relegated to like not exactly the glory roles in the scene. They're not always going to be up on stage playing music, but they might be people who are running venues, booking gigs, running record labels, for example, working relatively behind the scenes in the scene. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think a virtue of not focusing like just on music in this book is that there was, you know, plenty of room to talk about those experiences as well. You know, a Mm -hmm. lot of people in punk are in bands, but a lot of people who are into punk are into other aspects of the lifestyle of the scene as well. Um, yeah. I also think that, you know, and, you know, and there are plenty of like thoughtful, um, politically minded punks out there, but there still are plenty of, you know, dumbasses who just want to party and listen to loud music. Yeah. And that's okay. Yeah. But those also generally like the person who's, you know, taking down a 12 pack of beer mm-hmm. and, listen you know just wants to mosh like they're probably not going to sit down and write something for a book so i think that also you know (laughs) skews our book toward them you know it's it's a book so people involved are going to be a little more thoughtful yeah um also wanted to add like (laughs) that this uh our table of contents happened pretty organically we didn't like we weren't like trying to look virtuous by Mm. forefronting a bunch of women queer people non-binary people um this is this is who this is who stepped forward for the book or who right. wanted to talk to who us. We know these are, this is who we know. These are, this yeah. is the community that we, you know, came up with. Uh, most of the people in this book are people who I knew before this book. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, you know, Chris as well. And I think it's just like, we are the kind of punk rockers who embrace that, say this again like there is a you recognize that punk rock is like 50 years old right so Mm -hmm. it's a is a large community that's gone through all kinds of uh different um avenues and 
political spheres and all kinds of stuff. So, you know, the lane that Chris and I travel in is one that is is more political, that's mm. more, um, you know, has has been um, intersectional or understood the intersectional in, intersectionality of these politics long before we knew those words, mm. you know, that word. So, um, you know, that's the lane that we travel in. So that's the lane of people who came through, you know. Yeah. So much cool stuff in the book, just about, you know, music and art for what it should be. This idea of getting it all out there and, you know, expressing your feelings. Towards the beginning, there's the there's the round table with uh, black and brown femmes. And they're, I, I think it's like literally like the question is, you know, give us some adjectives about black punk, transformative, rebellious, wild, compassionate, revolutionary, audacious, right? So good. There's that incredible story. And remind me, who was the, was it, who did Maggot Brain? Um, Hanif Abdurraki wrote the piece about Funkadelic and Maggot Brain. It was Funkadelic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Right. And so, you know, this idea that the the guitarist was told, like, play as if your mother had died. And Hanif obviously explains it much better and does a great job with it. Just this idea of, you know, imagining your mother dead and just singing and almost like he could never regain that again that's like his legendary you know piece it's that 10 minute song that people get pissed off when you play it on the jukebox right <laughs> so, so long. but just and then there's the you know mariah stovall her fiction is called the princess in the pit and it's i think if i understood it well you know it's it's definitely an allegory but it's like the ending is is not your good girl the you know this idea of the book has so many ways in which you can be black and so many ways in which you can be punk and Mariah, you know, it doesn't have a happy ending. It doesn't have a, like, you know, she was the the princess and she was the hero. There's also that great fiction piece. Um, this idea of where the where the girl, I believe her father is going through medical issues. And at the Courtney end, Long's piece, music means free. Thank you. And she just goes into her car at the end, right? And just screams her lungs out to the song on the radio. And that's, I mean, that's really what art and, and creativity is all about, right? Yeah, it's cathartic. Cathartic you can, is the word. You can give your life meaning. It can, it can help you get through some stuff. Yeah. No doubt about it. The the ending, the last couple uh, pieces in the book are, you know, the tattoo conversation we talked about with Brontes Purnell, kind of just shooting the shooting the shit, right? There's a nice balance between the nostalgia and the future. And I love how you end the book with some acts, acts to watch. And then, woo, any controversy? Because you picked some of your favorite songs. In alphabetical <laughs> order, which was smart. That was smart. So it wouldn't be like, you know, that was my eighth, you know, just, oh, it's alphabetical. Any yeah. controversy over which ones you picked or how hard was that to pick those those favorite songs? I'm sure there was a million, thousands. We just asked our contributors to name two, three songs that they wanted to hear. Um, and then, you know, sometimes, you know, we had like people wanted to hear, listed off a handful of songs by like Special Interest or Soul Glow, for example. Mm -hmm. So then... We just like pick one. Sometimes it was our favorite, um, you know, <laughs> little editorial prerogative there. But, you know, we wanted once again, you know, we wanted the book to show punk as being this widespread thing. There's a lot of ways to be black and punk. Um, and you can see that even in the in the list of music that's in there that ranges from like catchy poppy stuff to the heaviest, screamiest maelstrom of music you've ever heard. Um, something is bound to click with you. And you know, hopefully readers will find a way to be to feel seen by something in this book. That was the big point for, for both of you, James. James, how do you hope this book is is seen in ten years? You hope it's in college classrooms. You hope it's you know at um, 
at a you know indie record store? Do you hope it's taught at the high school level? Do you hope it's you know how do you how do you want this book to be to be seen in the future? Yeah, I think all of those things are possible. You know, I mean, all of those things are true of of my other work. Um, I think there's something. Uh, there's a certain amount of how do I put this? I mean, the fact that there's just this is the first book of its kind. So it absolutely will be adopted into curriculum, you know? Yes. Um, and at the same time, you know, it's not, it's not academia, you know? And, and Chris always imagined, I remember very multiple times him saying like this being one of the like folded up uh, leaf, you know, like spine bent books that's like at every punk house, you know? Nice. And you know, early conversations about the book were like, you know, do you want it to be hardback? You want it to be, you know, we're like, no, let's make it as cheap as possible so that it, it can fit in people's back pocket. It I can love be it. something that people can take with them. Mm. They can share with their friends. Um, so, yeah, I think all of those things are probabilities. Very and cool. that, that level of accessibility, it, it isn't, you know, just about the price of the book. It's also about the contents of it. Um mm. You know, we didn't, it's not an academic book. I think it will work in an academic setting. We, we would love to see it as along with having a PA punk house bookshelf classic. We'd love to see it on some college syllabi, but this isn't like a dry mm. academic paper. Um, mm. This is lively writing. And mm. we hope that people, we hope that people recognize that. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I could see working, you know, so many different ways. Like a lot of it, you know, could be taken, you know, piece by piece, excerpt by excerpt, nonfiction by nonfiction, fiction by fiction. You know, you could teach it in a fiction class. You could teach it in a, I don't know, American studies. One of the great writers in the piece, he had this great, beautiful image in his in his short story. The last image is of cotton candy, like a coming from a wispy paper cone. Oh man, that guy's got skills. I don't know who wrote right? that. Right? You know, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe Chris Terry, something like that. <laughs> man, I love that image. Thank you very much. Yeah, I have a piece of short fiction in the book as well. Me and yeah, James and I. Once again, that's the editorial prerogative. We, nice. we both up for the book as well. We wanted to hang out with everybody else. Man, oh, that, that was such a cool one. And James, I love the, uh, I love, that's what I was talking about earlier. You said you wrote something about how your, uh, your daughter was like, I'm going to go goth. And you're like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I love the personal touches that came in there too, right? Victory. Yeah, congratulations. For, for better right? or worse. James, if you feel like it and you can, you can say no comment, but um, what are you working on for in the future? Yeah. Um, well, I uh, I have a deal with um, Pantheon. I'm doing a nice. a um, book that's it's going to be prose. It's a prose hybrid. Uh, it's a prose comics hybrid, um, cool. and uh, it's it's basically my story about like uh, discovering all of these politics and punk, um, deciding to make Afropunk, and then all the ways I compromise those politics. Um, and, uh, ultimately, you know, Afropunk got away from me. So it's like a capitalist cautionary tale. BCT capitalist cautionary tale. One of those, <laughs> man. Well, thank you for sharing that. Chris, anything that you're working on? You said there's another novel, I think. Yeah. I'm on the fourth draft of my third novel. Um, I did three drafts really fast because I really wanted to get done. And those three drafts were very incomplete. So okay. I'm <laughs> trying not to like compete with a clock and just get it done and enjoy the process. I'm 
excited about the story. I'm trying to learn more about plot and okay. about genre. I read a lot of genre fiction as opposed to the sort of heavier literary stuff. And okay. I want that to be reflected in my work more. Yeah, I put in an hour this morning. It wasn't my best writing day. I had a better yeah. week last week. So I'm a little okay. salty. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> tomorrow will hopefully be better. I'm going to stare at a wall and think about it before I go to bed tonight. <laughs> well, social media tells me you should be able to write a book in a month. Nanmo, Rymo, <laughs> Rymo, whatever the heck. So come on. So on. Uh, I'm a, I'm a, I, I teach writing at UCLA Extension and elsewhere. And I often, I sometimes get students that are like, yeah, so I wrote this thing in National Novel Writing Month. Um, what do I do with these 300 pages that I shit out? And I'm like, start over? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I wish they had like National Novel Writing Week and a Half. So you could right. get pages and then figure out what you want to do. So you don't just like take a left turn and then. Oh, I see what you mean. Like you got too far into it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, oh man. I appreciate that. So um, I'm not sure James, why you're no fun, but Spooner's no fun, right? Is the website. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is it spooners.nofun.com? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that will have like the tour info, right? Yeah. The there's, a, there's a up-to-date events page. Um, almost up-to-date. I got, I have, a couple more to, to add on there yeah there's an events page there as well as like a shop you can buy all the the books there as well links to all of our stuff and whatnot yeah nice and so i'll be linking for for sure you know we could have a whole episode of, we I did have a whole episode with chris about black card mostly great book you know high desert obviously has been has done great we're gonna do a whole episode about that so i'll put all those links there on the episode note and chris and james any um any other places to find you online? You want to give your social media? Uh, you can find me uh, on Instagram and Facebook at uh, Spooners No Fun as well. Okay. I'm uh, Chris L. Terry, middle initial L, on Instagram, Twitter, whatever it's called, and a bunch of other stuff. Um, yeah, come find me. I don't have a website right now, but you can find me on the internet. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Gentlemen, really appreciate your time. Um, I know you're going to be up in the Sacramento area soon. I'm hoping to see you. Although I said I may, may be out of town, but if not, I got some stuff coming next summer. And uh, congratulations. I mean, it really is just, I mean, just a, an incredible accomplishment. I can see it being the one kid, you know, seeing it at the library, seeing it in this classroom, seeing it in this, you know, friend's back pocket, like you talked about. Like, what, what's this? What's this? A few hundred pages later, like, holy crap, that was quite an accomplishment. So congrats. I'm sure you guys, you guys deserve a break, but also continue, uh, continue good luck with your, uh, with the rest of your work. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us on Chills at Will. Awesome to have you, Chris. The jacket for the second timers in the mail the next week or so. <laughs> and James, I look forward to getting you that for the, when you, when your uh, next book comes out. We'll get you that second second book, second uh, All right. uh, jacket. Thanks, gentlemen. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. What a pleasure it has been to speak with Chris L. Terry and James Spooner. I wish them continued good luck with their writing, and I'm so looking forward to continuing to following their careers and important work. Thank you for listening to this episode. You can now subscribe to the Chills of Will podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. You can also ask for it by name using Alexa and find the pod on Stitcher, Spotify, and on Amazon Music. Follow me on Instagram where I'm at Chills of Will Podcast or on Twitter where I'm at Chills at Will P01. You can watch this and other episodes on YouTube. Watch and subscribe to the Chills at Will podcast channel. Sign up now for the Chills at Will podcast Patreon. It can be found at patreon.com backslash Chills at Will podcast Peter Real. 
Real spelled R-I-E-H-L. Check out the page that describes the benefits of a Patreon membership, including cool swag and bonus episodes. Thanks in advance for supporting my one-man show, my DIY podcast, and my extensive reading, research, editing, and promoting to keep this independent podcast pumping out high-quality content. This is a passion project of mine, a DIY operation, and I'd love for your help in promoting what I'm convinced is a unique and spirited look in an often-ignored art form. The intro song for the Chills Will podcast is Wind Down Instrumental, and the other song played on the episode was Hoops Instrumental by Matt Whitehour, and both songs are used through archesaudio.com. Please tune in for episode 212 with Teresa Runstetler, award-winning scholar of African-American history. Her work focuses on intersection of race and masculinity, labor and sport, and her most recent is Black Ball, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Spencer Haywood, and the Generation that Saved the Soul of the NBA. This episode will air on November 14th. For now, thanks again for listening. I hope that these uncertain days bring you texts by writers with mad skills like James Spooner and Chris L. Terry, whose work, like Black Punk Now, gives you chills at will. (laughs) 